everyone. Welcome to the June 17th, 2022 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your guest host tonight, Simone D. Ross. Let's get into it. Topic one, primary elections are just 10 days away and campaign finance reports have been released. Both parties seem to be spending a similar amount on campaigns, with Republicans holding six of the most expensive legislative campaigns and Democrats holding the remaining four. Patty Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward. I have to ask the most basic question. Why should the average voter care about campaign finance and who has the most money, who has the least money? Why should they care? Well, I would say you can look at Washington, D.C. and what's going on there and what isn't going on there, and you should care about everything you possibly can regarding the elections. You can look at the Colorado Capitol. You can decide if you like what's going on there, if you don't, to bring it down to some of the lower levels state at the counties. Do you like what's going on there? Or do you not? Pay attention to the campaigns. In this case, I've been watching some of the television ads the Democrats are running on Ron Hanks and Joe O'Day for the Senate, you know, who one of them is going to be up against Michael Bennett. And it's crazy what they're saying and their logic doesn't make any sense. But it's fascinating for a primary 10 days away, away to have such fights going on. Michael Bennett had, has raised $7 million and he has most of it still to spend. So no matter what, no matter who makes it out of this primary, and Joe O'Day has already put in $1.1 million of his own money, whoever makes it out is going to have a really tough time not only overcoming everything that has been thrown at them during the primary, but overcoming the war chest that Michael Bennett has. So you have to decide, do you like what Michael Bennett's done, do you not? Boebert, Lauren Boebert has raised a huge amount of money. Republicans are gonna have to decide, does it make a difference, the money she's raised, where has it come? They, can, they have an option in the primary. They can vote for Don Corum. So there are a lot of things at stake in the next 10 days. So that's, that's critical, right, when we talk about what does the average voter want? What does this mean when you're reading the tea leaves, when you're following the money trail? Because essentially, you're saying, and you can totally debate me, um, the money trail is where the interest is. So what story, when we're looking at the money trail, Krista, what story is this telling us about the interest of these candidates? So if you look at these 10, uh, 10 races, for the most part, they are safe Republican or safe Democratic districts. Not all of them, but most of them. And so this is the real race, all right? This is, this is basically what the general would be. That's why there's so much money being poured in, is whether or not, in most cases, whether a a more moderate candidate, say a Katie Marsh, comes out on top, or whether a more, in that case, uh, a very liberal candidate, Epps, comes out on top. So it really is about the character of, of the, or I would say the partisanship and the, uh, whether somebody's really far left or really far right, um, or somewhere in the middle, is, is really at stake here in these races. As a, uh, as a Republican, of course, you always want the other side to pick a super fringy person so that they might be able to lose in the general. As, though, as a Coloradan, what I really want, and I think what best serves everyone, is for moderate, thoughtful candidates to, to come out on top in all of these races so that once the general is over, we are served by a legislature that is thoughtful, moderate, and willing to work together. So I, I think that's great. We know that 
sometimes the good guy always finishes last. That's what they say. And so I guess you could maybe say it's synonymous with perhaps the moderate. That's not where the money trail is when you think about interest. So, so Greg, mm. how would that moderate, that again, that you're moderate, your average everyday voter, mm -hmm. when they're evaluating this data, when they're looking for a moderate candidate that represents them, how would your moderate voter know which candidate best represents them if you're tracing it back to the money trail? Well, I don't think that the money trail really flows to moderate. So looking there is probably not a good place to look. That means you're going to have to do research to figure out if there's a moderate candidate in the race. The problem with moderation, and I agree with you that having moderate candidates is the way to get things done in this country, is that that's just not how we operate. And what you're seeing with all the money flowing to these local races is how important state legislatures have become because that's where the action is now. That's where they actually get to debate and vote and make laws, and so they're fighting it out here. And the fact that Colorado leans Democratic, like barely 6% Democratic, means it's winnable. Like, you can, you can tip the scales. And so I think that's part of the reason that money is pouring in, and it just actually kind of flushes out moderates, unfortunately. Well, you say something, though, that actually just really kind of made my antennas go up. I'm hoping it maybe made all your antennas go up. Flushing out moderates. So if, in fact, we know that there's no money or very little money where that moderate voter is, where their interests are represented, we know that it's, we want moderate voters to do their research. So when it's all said and done, how can moderates really have a voice? That's a really good question. Um, I think... It comes down to finding uh, policy platforms that really speak to voters' interests, what they're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I also just want to go back to a point that Greg made also about how important state legislatures really are right now um, and zoom in a little bit on one race in particular that we're focusing on here at Axios Denver, which is uh, Colorado, who will represent Colorado's new 8th congressional district. The reason why this matters so much is because this race holds national significance. Uh, the North Metro Denver District has a near-even partisan split. What that means is that it's possible now for a Republican pickup, which is part of the party's efforts to retake the U.S. House. Um, something to watch will be how the GOP race pits the party establishment against uh, the more ardent faction. So we have Lori uh, Sane, the former state lawmaker and Weld County Commissioner, who uh, hails from the GOP's far-right wing, uh, who's saying she wants to go to Washington to fight socialism. On the other hand, we have uh, other candidate state Senator Barbara Kirkmeyer, Thornton Mayor Jan Coleman, and former Army Green uh, Beret Tyler Alcorn, who are all more traditional conservatives, focusing on things like taxes and Second Amendment rights. So it's certainly an interesting watch, or an interesting race to watch, and something that we'll be covering really, really closely over the next 10 days. Absolutely. So our next topic, I think this has been the topic that everyone has been talking about throughout the nation. Former CU Boulder law professor John Eastman found himself at the center of the January 6th trials when a committee revealed Eastman had advised former President Mike Pence on how to overturn the election to keep Trump in power. It was also revealed that Eastman asked Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani for a preemptive pardon. All right, um, legal coups? I mean, what, <laughs> is this what it's come to? Um, let's start with this topic, Kristen. What, what, 
Talk about a legal coup. What what happened here? So I am glad that these these hearings are going on, and I always want to give my a hat tip to, to Liz Cheney, um, being at the forefront and putting her own seat at risk to show that these things went on behind the scenes, that there were people who, uh, like, like Barr and others, who were saying to the president, no, you lost, it's time to concede. And then you had these other characters, like Eastman and others, who were saying, no, uh, I think you won. Let's uh, let's figure out how to make this real. Let's figure out how to overturn the, what they considered to be, uh, I guess, fraudulent votes. We know now, I think we pretty much knew then as well, that there was very little, if any, fraud in that, in that uh, election, that Biden was elected, that Trump lost. And, and yet there were people telling him, and of course then Trump telling his followers that he had won, all of this ends up being what happens at January, um, on January 6th. So I'm glad it's been exposed. I feel bad for the Benson Center, though. The Benson Center is really a great uh, institution. Um, I like to listen to their speakers. They, they have really interesting visiting people that come in and give speeches, and uh, you know Barry Weiss and others, that are really fun to listen to and really uh, inspiring and educational. And then you get somebody like Eastman, who by association then gives that institution a black eye. Absolutely. And, you know, the, our democracy, our electoral system, the way we run elections has been something that we have touted ourselves on mm -hmm. forever. This is this is the golden rule. Mm -hmm. And so having this come out, it really raises a question about how do you what is the process for the restoration of election integrity? How do we move forward as we're looking to other elections? Like that's a really big question. Um, <laughs> and there, well, and there are a lot of people really um, you know, fretting about it and trying to figure out what to do. I mean, in my view, one is to, you know, figure out how to address gerrymandering, like to go to your point about how do you get more people who are dedicated to moderation to be in politics, who understand the, the, the art of politics. The problem we have is most of the people who are getting in politics right now, they've not even been elected dog catcher. I mean, mm -hmm. they don't understand the process. They don't understand compromise or anything. So if we could figure out a way to have competitive districts where you actually had to play to both sides of the audience, that would be a huge, good first step. You know, the thing with Eastman that's funny, and I love this quote that Eastman and Trump were part of a coup in search of a legal theory, really, <laughs> really shines the light on, on ethics of lawyers. Like, you actually know something is not true, you actually know that, that you're wrong, and yet you still press the case. Um, I mean, that's kind of scary. And there are lots of people in the Republican Party and who were around Trump that knew what he was doing was wrong, and they still aided and abetted. And I think for that, Eastman, you know, got what he deserved. Yeah, and everything that you said is so on point, especially when we mentioned that big E word, ethics. Um, and it's going to be an interesting time for us to kind of do some healing, and we're really in that space. And so, again, we're talking about it's moderates. There's, mm -hmm. there's some restoration by getting more moderates in office. But what should the narrative be if we're talking about a restoration of ethics and building trust? What could that Republican Party narrative be moving forward? I think a very simple uh, truth that they could stick to is, I mean, it's the truth, it's facts. What are facts? Uh, and right now, as we've all mentioned, there is no evidence that has come out that this, that this uh, election was faulty. It wasn't, it was, it was a real election and to overturn it uh, and overthrow voters, you know, preferences is really wrong, a fundamental disgrace to our democracy. Um, and so at the very basic foundational level, Sticking to facts, telling the truth to Americans 
is a great place to start and stick to. Well, you said facts, but we lived in a world of alternative facts for a very, very long time. And so what needs to happen with Republican candidates, and let's be fair, right, Democratic candidates, to demolish the concept of alternative facts so we can get in a better space? Well, I think a first good move would be for Trump not to run for president again. The problem with the Republican Party is if he runs for president again, people will take their sides immediately. We're not going to get to any real facts because I don't think he knows a fact. We are 50 years after Watergate. To see Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein on the TV today talking about both what happened during Watergate, where there were not a lot of facts coming out early, and now what's going on in the House with these incredible hearings, to hear the different testimony going on, to see what Liz Cheney is doing, risking her political future, to to get to facts, to actually hear from the police that were there that day, to hear from those who said, yeah, Eastman and Trump were trying to get Mike Pence to completely ignore the law. I mean, that Mike Pence had to take, he actually consulted Dan Quayle. Who would have thought that? I mean, so we have to be ready to get the facts, but it's not easy sometimes. So good for the journalists who've done it. Good for Cheney and the others who are willing to have these hearings. It's important that we know what's true. But the problem is a lot of people don't want to know what's true. They don't want to know the facts. So that's we all have to encourage everyone to open their minds as much as possible and to be civil with people they disagree with. I think you just issued the biggest challenge of this um, election season, right, which is don't be afraid of further interrogating and to really seek truth and seek knowledge. Um, and I think that's why we're all here today on Colorado Inside Out, to get some of those facts and do that deeper interrogation. So t let's talk about something else. Jefferson County Schools are proposing the closure of some of their elementary schools due to low enrollment rates. While Jeffco has the capacity to serve 96,000 students, only 69,000 have enrolled and numbers are expected to continue to decline. Greg, this is a thing, and I don't know, I think this is a thing in just where we are now post-pandemic. We're seeing this in the workforce. Millions and millions of people are exiting. That's a system. We're seeing this in Jeffco. Students and ultimately families are making this decision to exit a system. So let's talk more deeply, honestly, about what does this mean about where we are with education, where learning takes place, how students need to learn to thrive. Right. Well, I mean, I think, it, you know, the, it's, first of all, it's very hard to take a neighborhood school from, from a community. I mean, I think that's the really the sad thing that's happening here. And there's something that's really, really great when you can go to your neighborhood school, you can walk to school and afterwards you can play with your, play, you know, your, your classmates and things of that nature. There's a combustion that's really positive for a neighborhood and a community. The bigger question for me is like, where have our kids gone? Uh, you know, there's no evidence they've been going to parochial school or private school or even being homeschooled, it's almost like they just vaporized, they just disappeared. And I think what's happening is this combination of two things. The first you mentioned is the impact of the pandemic. And we're still feeling the impacts of it uh, across all aspects of society. Second is cost of living in Colorado. I think these people just left the state. I think they took the money, sold their houses at astronomical prices, took it and moved to Charlotte. <laughs> and we just don't know where they are right now. Uh, that's a that's a that's a big drop 
uh, in, in student population, and it's happening not just in Jeffco, it's happening all over Colorado, and I think it's the double whammy of the pandemic, cost of living, that's uh, created the situation we're seeing right now. So obviously, let's talk solutions. You've raised a point about cost of living. Um, I raised the question about maybe we need to look at secondary education and say, well, where does learning happen? How does it happen? Does it help students thrive? Um, where are the students going? So what's, what happens in our public school systems moving forward? Because these are critical systems. Yeah, I think right now that's the really big question. We're seeing it in Jeffco, we're seeing it in Denver Public Schools, and, and honestly in a lot of schools across the country. Uh, they're trying to figure out how to close and consolidate, to keep, you know, keep salvage what is still working in, this, in the schools that you know, have thriving populations, uh, strong teacher uh, workforce there. Um, but it's, it's a really tough issue, and it's something that actually has been happening. The decline in enrollment uh, has been happening even before the pandemic. Obviously, the pandemic has exacerbated the problem as parents have been grappling with, you know, whether public schools are providing a stable learning environment for their kids with schools, you know, closing because of uh, COVID pandemics, opening again, closing again. You know, it's been completely unreliable for parents. Um, and what's really uh, troubling is we have a new survey, um, giant survey, over 100,000 kids, I believe, uh, were surveyed, something like that. Thousands of kids were surveyed. Um, it's the most comprehensive survey in the state that looked at kids, uh, their status of their mental health, how they're doing. And kids have never been more uh, depressed, stressed than right now. And this all fuels into, you know, not having a stable learning environment, having to deal with just the unpredictability of the pandemic. Um, so as far as solutions go, like mental health funding, um, those kinds of uh, resources for kids, um, therapists, those kinds of things are, are really, really important as schools look to consolidate right now. Absolutely. It is, it's astonishing to see some of our most vulnerable, the people that we kind of all stand in a gap for, um, exiting the education system. If you could pie in the sky, whiteboard, the plan of action to increase enrollment and engagement, what would it consist of? Well, first figuring out where those disappearing kids are, as Greg brought up, because it is not as though houses are, sub are not in demand. People are buying them. So presumably population isn't going down, but are they buying them for second homes? Or people who are just working remotely who don't have children, are they buying them for investments? Because Jeffco pro property is hot, so obviously families aren't moving in. Where are those kids? You can't really come up with a plan until you figure out, will the kids come back? Is it a temporary loss of those kids? We've all lived in neighborhoods where they wound up closing schools after baby boomers graduated, and then they had to reopen them 20 years later. So you really have to look at the demographics long term. Presumably, Colorado will always remain an attractive place to live. Will it be an attractive place to raise a family? And that's a big issue. And I looked at that survey, too, and I do want to point out pot use is down in high schools. <laughs> a happy note. <laughs> well, there you have it. <laughs> that is great. But, but this, this really does impact to all of our industries. It has a trickle-down effect, the housing industry, um, companies wanting to move to Colorado, businesses being able to find people to employ. And so who should we get involved in the conversation? Because it seems we're kind of at an intervention point. Um, if we were going to create an advisory board or a roundtable to solve this, who should be represented at this roundtable? 
Well, I would bring in a lot of different voices. Um, <clears throat> we do know that charter school enrollment is up for the state. Charter schools are a type of public school. We know that there is a hunger for private school options. So I think we would bring those to the table and perhaps look at an, uh, either a tax credit or a voucher, something that would enable parents to choose private schools of choice. We also know that a lot of families are homeschooling. More families are homeschooling around the country than ever before. How can we support those parents? What I would hope could come out of this is a more dynamic system that has more schools to choose from so that parents and kids can find the schools that they, they need that were, uh, will be the best place for those kids to thrive. Absolutely. I think we can say that the thing that does bring us all together is deeply caring for the future um, of, of the youth in our community and our, and our education system. So Douglas County Republican commissioners are requesting ownership of Denver-owned Daniels Park. The move has been positioned as an act of retaliation after the city of Denver made the decision to ban concealed carry weapons from public parks. All right, Elena, this is, this is a very interesting, are we playing chess, are we playing checkers, or is this Connect Four? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question, what is going on? Absolutely, uh, you know, I think the city, the city definitely expected some um, pushback from conservatives. You know, it's a crackdown on people who have permits to carry their firearms, and the city also didn't have data supporting, um, you know, whether crime is actually higher in public buildings and parks due to firearms, nothing like that. Um, but I think this this has actually taken Denver by surprise. I don't think they expected uh, conservatives to uh, react or retaliate in this way specifically. Just for background, um, Daniels Park is located in Douglas County. It's between Castle Pines and Highlands Ranch. Um, and it's been under Denver's jurisdiction for 100 years, or nearly 100 years. Um, it's a prized piece of land. It's about 1,000 acres in size, and it's listed on the National Register of Historic Places. So naturally, city leaders uh, say they would never move forward with an agreement to, you know, give away one of their treasured parks. Um, but some Douglas County commissioners are saying it's only right because Denver's decision has impinged on uh, constitutional rights. Um, the bottom line, I think, here is that there's no question this is a politically motivated move, um, and it's unlikely to come to fruition anytime soon because of all of the inevitable legal, legal challenges that will come as a result uh, from the city, you know, taking action. So, Patty, what could be the wildest hope of these county commissioners in this retaliatory act? Uh, maybe to put up a shooting range where they can put out the De Jeff Co uh, the Doug Coe school board and they can <laughs> fight it out there. You know, they're so divided. It's a beautiful park and it has one of the two bison um, herds. So maybe they want to take out a lot of blunderbusses and muskets and just have it, you know, raise money by shooting bison. It's ridiculous, but it is a really hilarious concept. Agreed, agreed. And we needed that little bit of levity, <laughs> for sure. Um, but, you know, too, when we think about parks and, and ownership of parks, it is kind of one of those questions when you think about even what's happening in Denver with parks, where it's like, who owns the park? Whose park is it? Whose job is it to care for parks? And, and really, what is this saying about using a city park as leverage? Krista. You know, I'm with Laura Thomas, um, one of the commissioners. This is politicizing um, a, a park and a park decision. And it would bankrupt the district. Um, it's, uh, it would be a lot of money, I think a half a billion dollars to purchase it, which is absurd. And then it's not exactly bear country, so why would you need a gun? I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't, I'm sure there are individual situations, uh, you know, a woman with a stalker boyfriend who wants to hike in Daniels Park and wants to carry conceal. I'm not saying that there aren't 
some rare instances. But generally speaking, you don't need a gun to be in the park. Um, leave it at home. Go for a hike. And for Pete's sake, Douglas County, let it let it go. <laughs> so, Greg, yes. you always give the best advice. If you had <laughs> to give the Douglas County commissioners one piece of advice on how to emerge from this um, unscathed, mm -hmm. what would your piece of advice be? I would tell them to be quiet and reflect on what's been happening in this country for the last month and a half with the shootings in Buffalo, the shootings in uh, Alabama just today, that I don't think we need any guns in the park. I go to the park to relax, play with my kids, maybe chase a dog, and I don't want to get shot just because my dog is sniffing on your leg. So I, I, I see no reason for there to be people in the park with concealed, concealed weapons on them, and they ought to you know, reflect on it this weekend, come back on Monday and say, given everything that's happened, we're cool with that. That's what I think they should do. Uh, now, will, will, will they do it? I, I don't think so. And part of it is, I think, in particular, Republicans who really just bristle at the nanny state and, you know, any rules and regulations that tell you you can't smoke, you can't drink Coke, you can't do this, you can't do that, or you can't have concealed weapons in parks, they're, they're looking for a reason to, to, to oppose that, like DeSantis and Disney and that kind of thing. So I think we're going to see more of this, unfortunately, but on this particular issue, bringing uh, guns to a park where my kids are going to be playing, I don't see any reason for that. It sounds like we s we're stopping kind of where we started, which is moderation. Right? <laughs> How do we gain further connectivity to the moderates? All right, we have had robust conversations, so we are going to make this the bumper sticker edition of Disgrace of the Week. Douglas County is not the only county buffaloed by a crazy school board. Denver Public Schools, the school board has got to get it together and quit acting like kindergartners. On my way here, I uh, drove by somebody who forgot to wear pants. Um, so this is a, a vagrant with, with no pants who luckily was not facing me. But uh, that butt is not something that I'm going to forget anytime soon. Denver has got to get a grip on its vagrancy and urban camping problem. Talk about fiddling when Rome is burning. You know, we've got the U.S. Senate, you know, arguing over components of the so-called um, gun, um, gun legislation. And today we had a bunch of elderly people shot and killed in a, a rural Alabama. It's, uh, it's ridiculous. Um, we've just got to get a hold of the situation. It's hot. The metro area was under a heat advisory today, which according to Nine News is the first um, in the front range since 2008 and the second ever. I'm not, I'm not about it. <laughs> <laughs> the heat wave. All right, say something nice. Talk about hot. This part of town, Juneteenth, tomorrow and Sunday. Great celebration. First time it's an official holiday in Colorado. Ukrainian President Zelensky saw a picture of him this morning. He looks 20 years older than he was uh, a year ago. Um, way to be a, a hero. You know, I don't even understand hockey, but I'm really happy that the Avalanche are in the, 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 the cup. And it's great for Denver. It's been a long time since we had a championship, you know, like at our fingertips. Greg, Greg stole the words right out of my mouth. It feels amazing to be in a city with such big energy. Uh, that's just super contagious. And I feel like Denver hasn't had a moment like this in, a, in several years. So it's, it feels great. Absolutely. Well, we will see you next Friday. I'm Simone D. Ross, and good night.